Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hi there. I wanted to pop in with a message about our crowdfunding campaign. I'm relatively new to Candleland, but for years before I started working here, I really valued this organization's role in providing Canadians with reporting and commentary that you simply can't find anywhere else. We're in the home stretch right now of this year's fundraiser. We've got six days to go, and we still need your support in order to reach our goals. Candleland has been really lucky over the years as the news industry has shrunk and the number of reliable sources for trustworthy information and civil discourse has shrunk as well. But with your support, we've always grown year after year. You've encouraged and inspired us to grow our ambitions, and this year we set a target that would allow us to do more of what you love and appreciate about us. Tell more stories, feature more journalists, do more deep local investigative work, and have more conversations like the one you're about to hear. But we're not going to be able to do all of these things to tackle all of the stories and projects that we've started to develop. Not unless you become a Candleland supporter. We're not that far off from reaching our goal. We can do this. We just need 60 of you to join us each remaining day of this campaign. At the start of this month, we were seeing hundreds of you join or increase your support every day, but this has slowed to a trickle. I know that there are likely some of you who value the work that we do and who've maybe thought about signing up as supporters, but who have figured, well, somebody else is going to make it happen. I have been in your shoes before. But there actually isn't anybody else who's going to make it happen. We need you. We're not asking you to pay an arm and a leg to support us. The cost per month of supporting Candleland is less than you'd spend on one lunch, or about the cost of two coffees in Toronto. Signing up is easy and takes about a minute, and then we'll basically shower you with perks and bonus content and tickets to our live events and everything we can to show you our appreciation. But the main thing we give you when you support us is something you'll be giving to everyone, our journalism, and much more of it. Please join us, become a supporter now, or increase your support. Go to candleland.com join or click the link in the show notes. It's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and documents that are so completely redacted that we basically can't read them at all. Today, the Emergencies Act inquiry. Let's take a journey. And the Green Party has re-inherited Elizabeth May as their new leader. Is this a party that's stuck in the past? Because it sure seems like it. Joining me this week, we have David Moskrop, podcaster, political scientist, columnist, and the author of the 2019 book, Too Dumb for Democracy. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. You've perhaps heard her on Candleland before. We have Sandy Garasino, public affairs columnist for Canada's National Observer. Welcome to the backbench. Hi, Matea. Nice to be here. Nice to meet you. And last but not least, joining us after moving house this weekend, we have editor-in-chief at The Hub, Stuart Thompson. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's get into it. The federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act. I am absolutely, absolutely serene and confident um, that I made the right choice. 
For a while, we've been hinting about the fact that we would talk about the Emergencies Act inquiry, which wrapped up last Friday, at least the public hearings portion of it. This whole inquiry was in response to the federal government's invoking of the Emergencies Act last February in response to the Freedom Convoy's presence in Ottawa as well as blockades of border crossings. This was the first time ever that the act was invoked since it was passed in 1988. And using the Emergencies Act actually automatically triggers an inquiry. So that's what we've been watching unravel over the past six weeks in Ottawa. It's hard to know where to begin with all this and how to determine which parts of the inquiry are actually important to the public. So much has been revealed and it's hard to make sense of all of it. Today, we want to take a look back on what we've seen and heard and try to put it in context. So the inquiry started out with testimonies from CSIS, the OPP, the Ottawa Police Service, the RCMP commissioner, convoy organizers, people impacted by the convoy at the time that it was going on, and many, many more testimonies. Last week, we moved into the final leg of public testimonies in the hearing, and we heard from various ministers in the federal government, as well as Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, and then finally, for the grand finale, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It was clear that it wasn't that they just wanted to be heard. They wanted to be obeyed. They wanted us to change public policy, public health policy designed uh, to help Canadians, and we're going to occupy uh, locations across this country and interfere with the lives of Canadians until such a decision was taken. All of this has been in the hopes of figuring out two things. First, on what basis did the government declare a public order emergency? And second, should they have done it? So let's start off with what we heard most recently. This past week was, I would argue, the marquee week of testimony where we got to hear from the prime minister as well as a number of other cabinet ministers. So Sandy, what did we learn from the past week of testimony? We learned a very great deal. We learned the extent to which in the communications between the various ministers about each of their departments, what they were reviewing leading into the declaration what information they had at their disposal from policing agencies. Remember, we had the Ottawa Police Service, the OPP, Commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, was, uh, gave evidence. Then we also had evidence from the director of CSIS. So we had the information about what information did the federal government have? What did the cabinet have? what was available to the Prime Minister. In my take, what was really revealing was that the director of CSIS had actually recommended that the Emergencies Act be invoked. And this was in conflict with testimony from the various policing agencies that, that it wasn't necessary, that they had plans in place to clear the convoy in Ottawa. It was notable that we had that information and... I don't know how much new information that we learned from the testimony of the of the cabinet ministers that we didn't know from communications and memos and texts that had already gone into evidence. But what we really saw was a much bigger light shone on and the curtain really drawn back from the nature of, of the conversations and the information that cabinet had. So Stuart and David, were there any moments, whether it's in the past week of the inquiry uh, where we saw a lot of this cabinet minister testimony that, as Sandy pointed out, some of it had already been hinted at or revealed either through other pieces of testimony or through written evidence. But throughout the entire thing, were there any particular moments, whether that was pieces of information being revealed or specific people that took the stand uh, that really stood out to you as particularly important? I'll just quickly say that, you know, someone who follows politics and if you've ever read the old Bob Woodward books about, you know, presidents in the United States, um, it is so interesting 
to what Sandy said about pulling back the curtain on this stuff, because we literally got to see the minister's group chats and they're kind of silly, like everybody else's group chats. And I thought that was just one of those things that I'll probably take away from this more than the sort of serious policy stuff. And it reminds you that when this stuff's going on, it's a little chaotic. It's a little crazy for everyone involved. And the public testimony from the ministers and from the prime minister pretty much corroborates with what they say publicly. It's how they defend themselves in public for why they made the decision. And I think probably not a lot of minds were changed about whether it was the right decision or not. And, you know, coming from Ottawa, I think we probably have you know, pretty heavy opinions about whether it was right or not. But I think the civil liberties argument will be sort of litigated in public opinion after this. And I've been saying for a long time, the political side of this was always going to be okay for Trudeau. And I think probably you saw that in his testimony last week, which is that he got to come up and appear calm and collected and sort of survey the decision-making process and, you know, have this sort of calm discussion while outside there was protests from anti-restrictions types, from convoy types. And I think the PMO, the Liberal Party, have always liked that contrast, and they were quite happy to get it last week. So on the political side, um, it's good for the Liberals. And on the actual policy side, I don't think it'll be a big issue in the minds of Canadians, um, and we're still sort of sorting that stuff out. Two things stood out for me. One was having Justin Trudeau say, well, the police didn't have their, their shit together repeatedly from various authorities and police of jurisdiction don't worry we got this there's a plan there's a plan and for the second weekend there was a plan and we have a plan for this and it's not going to happen and we've got this we're we're getting more resources no there's a plan we kept hearing there was a plan as we saw to my significant irritation and to notable public cost no doubt a series of lawyers come up and try to cover the ass of their employer a number of employers who completely failed Ottawa and Canadians throughout the entire occupation series of blockades. They simply just did not do their job. And to have Justin Trudeau say what I think a lot of people in Ottawa and presumably who folks who tried to use the Ambassador Bridge and, and people near Coots, Alberta, felt at the time, uh, nobody seems to be doing their job here, those who are meant to be doing it at the municipal level and at the level of the police services. So that was the first thing that stood out. The second thing that stood out to me was Christa Freeland's testimony. Uh, now, her bailiwick is, is the economy. So as you'd expect, she was concerned about what the bankers had to say. I really do believe our security as a country is built on our economic security. And if our economic security is threatened, all of our security is threatened. And the bankers were essentially saying the same thing. Well, nobody seems to be in charge here. And we're being laughed at around the world. And there's a potential threat to economic security because no one's going to want to trade with us. No one's going to trust our supply chains if we can't keep the border open and if the capital city is occupied by a bunch of bouncy castle extremists. So uh, to see that was was notable, too. I have conflicting feelings about the power of bankers uh, in this country, the oligopolist bankers. Uh, but it is notable to see that, you know, the, there was wide ranging concerns across the country that were manifest in pretty particular common sense, uh, in similar ways across classes and across interests. David, did you see one of the texts? I think it was from Marco Mendicino, where he said, uh, you know, guys, Mark Carney's mad about this <laughs> as if it was this big moment. He's watching. <laughs> 
it's time to do something because Mark's mad. <laughs> That's so funny. I didn't see that one. I think the one that I remember from the checks chain uh, between David Lametti and Marco Mendicino was there was some Peter Slowly is incompetent was the one that really hit me. And I was like, wow, stars, they really are just like us in terms of the way that they speak in group chats. Uh, it reminded me of like, people in student governance uh, speaking in very similar ways. I think it says a lot. So it's interesting, David, like the notion of pointing out that there was a sort of wide-ranging description of like what was going on as being a threat, not just perhaps to physical security, but also the notion of this being a threat to economic security. And that seemed to be the justification that uh, Christia Freeland definitely, as you mentioned, I brought out in her testimony that they needed to invoke the Emergencies Act because the economic security of Canada was at stake. So CSIS's position on this whole thing has been that there wasn't a threat of violence, but then, you know, later on they did sort of somewhat seem to okay the invocation of the Emergencies Act. There have been other ways that this threat has been defined, such as by looking at the financial costs of having borders blocked for trade or the notion that it would make countries less willing to trade with us, uh, but also looking at the fact that some of the convoy organizers and certain participants in the convoy, although certainly not all of them, also were posting and sharing or participating at the actual protest sites, like pretty racist and inflammatory rhetoric. So what sorts of threats really should count, I suppose, when we're looking at something that's as sort of serious of an action as invoking the Emergencies Act. I thought Justin Trudeau's testimony was interesting because he listed what seemed to be three orders of threats that he considered. First and foremost was the public safety threat to human security, to physical security. The second was institutional security and trust. And the third was economic. Now, of course, different cabinet ministers are going to are going to order those differently. You'd expect Christopher Freeland to order the economy first, for instance. But that that was interesting to see. It was okay. Well, we've got three orders of threat here, and the the occupation blockades seem to check off all of them. So we've got a real problem. What's very interesting to note, and this may appear in the final report of of the Rouleau Commission, is there's a tension between those sort of common sense concerns about security at three levels and what the Act defines as as necessitating or, or uh, permitting the invocation of the Emergencies Act, which is the definition of a, of a threat under a CSIS Act. So I suspect what we might see is now the first one arguably was met, but the other weren't necessarily considered or at least couldn't be considered under the Act. So I, I suspect we might see uh, some recommendations to change that so that we can, in fact, deal with those considerations under the Act. And I think we ought to, because at the end of the day, I think at least invoking the EA was, was right and perhaps quite possibly legal as well. But I think in any sort of common sense review of it, both in the moment and after the fact, but especially the moment, it was necessary. And perhaps we should code that into the to the law. And I'll close on this point. Emmett McFarlane has a piece on this right now in his substack where he sort of says, it's not the War Measures Act, and it was an extraordinary suspension of civil liberties. The act requires the government to operate within the boundaries of the charter. So, you know, we should normalize this. But it isn't exactly like making the, the War Measures Act a routine thing to invoke. If I can leap in on, on that, David, I think that that's actually a really important point. And one of the things that's really interesting um, about the Emergencies Act is that it actually contemplates a two forms of emergency. One being a public welfare emergency and the other being a public order emergency. A public welfare emergency being the nature of natural disasters, fire, flood, storming, this kind of damage that necessitates the government to use special powers not normally afforded 
responded to them in terms of things like uh, prohibition of travel, evacuation, seizure of property. These are all normal powers that the federal government can take on to deal with a natural disaster. And we've had those in British Columbia um, uh, just last year. I don't know if it was it was declared a, a national emergency, but it, enormous powers were used when our railways and our highways were washed out because of climate disaster or our fires and floods. This is very normal. And if you look at the language around public welfare emergency, it's very broad. It's not nearly as tightly defined as uh, the public order emergency is. And I think that what David's pointing to is, is very important, which is the public order emergency language is very narrowly drafted, and I think because of, and it's in response to the War Measures Act, which it came to replace. But for instance, in a public welfare emergency, natural disaster, one of the heads of declaring an emergency is, for instance, the breakdown in the flow of goods so serious as to be a national emergency. That is missing from the public order emergency language. So I think that we're going to have to revisit the public order emergency. And I think it's very important to recognize that this was not the War Measures Act. And a huge amount of our attention and focus and concern rightly so, as citizens, has been about the suspension of civil liberties and concerns about of that nature. But we really do need a little bit more breadth in that kind of middle ground just to enable uh, the government to move in, particularly when the real nature of this emergency wasn't the convoy and wasn't the blockades. It was the failure of policing agencies and provincial and municipal authorities to do their jobs. Yeah, I think that's an important piece. And it just occurred to me that at no point during our conversation so far have we really summarized like what the actions were that were taken as a result of the Emergencies Act. So things that I noted were, you know, being able to mobilize much more rapidly police from outside the Ottawa area to uh, actually participate in moving the stuck protesters in the, what's the word that I'm looking for? I guess like... Tow trucks. Tow trucks, yeah. Tow trucks. <laughs> uh, this was all about tow trucks. Yeah. The whole thing was about tow trucks. <laughs> yeah. No, so mobilizing police, mobilizing tow trucks. I was trying to think of like a synonym for encampment because that's not the word that I'm looking for. But basically, the fa- that is kind of what it was. Like people had set up. The dug-in entrenchment. Yeah, the entrenchment to be able to actually mobilize, whether it's tow trucks, whether it's police. Like that's the sort of thing that we're talking about where perhaps other policing agencies or other orders of government whose responsibility it might have been uh, to deal with this like could have done so, but just simply were not acting, right? I think one thing that was very striking from Trudeau's testimony was the fact that when he was asked, you know, you know, Ottawa police said that they had a plan or such and such order of government said that they had a plan, you know, what did you know of this? And he's basically saying there was there was clearly no plan. We kept hearing there was a plan. And even, I mean, we heard in, in testimony here that there was uh, a plan on the 13th that the Ottawa police services pulled together. I would recommend people take a look at that actual plan, which wasn't a plan at all. And we were being shown these like redacted documents that sort of imply that as late as like February 13th, there was no clear plan of action to actually get people out of downtown Ottawa and make it so that people who lived in the area could kind of return to a normal state of affairs. So I want to circle back to just this sort of notion of the like legal definition of an emergency or the legal threshold that needs to be met in order for the Emergencies Act to be invoked, right? Because I think through some of your comments, it seems as though there is a reasonable way of interpreting the Emergencies Act as well as definitions in the CSIS Act that means that maybe this was like actually fine and legal. I do think it's interesting that 
the head of CSIS did say that at one point he thought that it maybe didn't meet that threshold and then later did a bit of an about face that the head of CSIS and CSIS as an agency actually recommended that the government invoke the Emergencies Act. And we also learned through this inquiry that the act was invoked based on uh, a legal opinion in part uh, that cabinet had received. But then when that legal opinion uh, was shown during the inquiry, it was like completely redacted. What do we make of the fact that there was this legal opinion that was being referenced, but then at no point did we get to find out what it was? Yeah, I I find myself deeply ambivalent about this because living outside of Ottawa and, you know, I probably depart from Sandy and David on this in that I was generally against most mandates during all this, but was annoyed by the protest and annoyed by the way they went about it. So I was broadly sympathetic with a lot of what they were saying, but I just wanted them out of my city. I think probably if you put a gun to my head, I would say the government probably overstepped with the Emergencies Act. But I also know that what Justin Trudeau said about the police was entirely true. Even the contemporaneous reporting about the police at the time, you were saying, these guys have no plan. They don't know what they're doing. There's no coordination. And something did need to shock the system. So I'm not you know, on my rooftop screaming about civil liberties because of that. I, I kind of have an understanding of how Justin Trudeau must have felt. You also saw that from Jason Kenney in his texts to ministers saying, uh, you know, people are bringing me psychological analysis and I need tow truck drivers. And this is the kind of stuff they were dealing with. And so when you look at the definition, the CSIS director said, for our purposes, this would not meet the definition that we have in the CSIS Act. They use the CSIS Act definition to decide if it's a public order emergency. But Trudeau and others have said, but this is a cabinet decision So we have a broader definition of this. And that amount of legalese and that amount of nuance, I mean, most Canadians have stopped listening already. And I think what I'll probably come down to is, do you think that was the right decision in the moment? Because there won't be any consequences for this. There'll be some judge that no one's ever heard of saying, I don't quite agree with your decision here. And then Trudeau will say, well, thanks very much. I'm going to move on to the next thing now. I genuinely do understand it. You know, our prime minister had a choice between seeming utterly feckless or doing this thing that he did. And and I have to say, thinking about it in the moment, which Stuart mentioned a couple of times, I think is very important. In watching Trudeau testify, he kept repeating, you know, what if I hadn't done this and things had gone even further pear-shaped. But, you know, what if a police officer had ended up in the hospital? What if uh, it had popped up elsewhere and so on? Uh, What if it had escalated? Because as Trudeau and and co. were saying, look, I mean, we were concerned not only that you have to put these things down, but if you don't put them down properly, they pop up somewhere else. And it's the the whack-a-mole is the phrase we kept hearing. And at the time, we, you know, and I lived in Ottawa, I lived in Lower Town at the time, very close to, to the site of where it was happening. We didn't know it was going to happen. We didn't know whether there were guns, whether there were weapons. There were propane tanks stored outside improperly, you know, 150 feet from the Senate building. There were folks walking on the streets with jerry cans of gasoline in front of the parliament buildings. No one was stopping them. The police were just standing there. And kids around them. I mean, like kids and jerry cans. What a great combination. Well, exactly. And it was freezing cold outside. We thought, like, someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to die. Someone's going to explode. 
And nobody seems to be doing anything about this. So at the time, the feeling was, my God, someone has got to do this, has got to get this thing going because it's it's escalating. It's not ending. It's been weeks and it's terrifying. And so, you know, when you look at it, I think most, as sort of Stuart suggests, most people are going to look at that and say, okay, I, I get the general gist of that. Let's move on with our lives. But I will say that, all that said, having the commission and going through this process is an extraordinarily important element of this because I think it does chill future uses of it. Because I don't think there's a lot of politicians who are going to want to be up on that stand <laughs> doing that in the future. Or police agencies. Exactly. It's going to have a real edifying effect, I think, in, in the long term. And, and people, it's not going to encourage people to use the EA more. It's going to encourage them to get their shit together. So to conclude, I think we've had a number of predictions of what the sort of outcomes of this inquiry are going to be. I think we seem to all be in agreement that the political consequences for the liberal government are likely to be non-existent because people's positions, I think, on the use of the Emergencies Act were already quite entrenched before this set of hearings. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I have a point of order, honorable speaker. All right, Stuart, what's your point of order? Well, I was going to just point out the protests going on in China right now and just how extraordinarily brave it is to protest anything in an authoritarian regime and give some kudos. I have mentioned that, but I do want to say the one thing bringing me joy right now is David Moskarov's Zoom setup with his Christmas tree, his cozy winter sweater, his beard, I am on the tail end of a really bad cold right now, and it's bringing me a little bit of joy. I wish the listeners could see it. <laughs> that is not a point of order, but that's. I'm so glad that you gave the visual because it is so much nicer than anything that I have at my house and also so much <laughs> more cozy than my setup in studio. So thank you for pointing this out and giving a little visual description to the listeners. Speaker, I have a point of order. Yes. What's your point of order, David? Well, first, I'd like to thank Stuart for that. I, I appreciate it very much. And, and you can't see it. Uh, those on this call and nobody listening can see it, but there's also a dog in the background curled up in the corner. <laughs> this is such a bucolic scene that, that is being painted here, everybody. It is a real Norman Rockwell contrast to my radical socialist politics. <laughs> and the sweater, by the way, the sweater. <laughs> we do contain multitudes. And speaking of multitudes, my point of order is this. I, I've been preparing a, a piece for the, my substack about ostracism because every month I do a piece on uh, an idea in the history of democracy and I'm, I'm reading deeply on ostracism right now. It is an ancient Greek practice that was around in democratic Athens for the better part of a century in which the people could vote whether or not to hold an ostracism hearing and then could decide whether or not to expel one person from the polis for the period of 10 years during which their property and standing would be maintained, after which they could return without shame, but they'd be gone for 10 years. It was an anti-elite curving mechanism. And I'm just wondering whether or not it's something we might want to bring back. I think it could do a lot of good if done properly. 
and I, just hear me out. It's something worth talking about at least because ultimately it's unclear whether or not it worked for the Greeks, but it might work for us. Who? Who is first Who? on your list? Uh, Doug Ford. <laughs> Doug Ford. That's an easy one. Doug Ford. Yeah, we didn't talk about Doug Ford, did we? No, appropriately because he wasn't present during the convoy and yeah, or the hearings. <laughs> Well, that is not a point of order, but the line, we don't know whether it worked for the ancient Greeks, but it might work for us, really reminds me of that arrested development line when Lindsay and Tobias are thinking of doing the open relationship and they're like, oh, it never works for anyone, but it might work for us. That's by design, by the way. I completely ripped it off. (laughs) Honorable speaker, I have a point of order. Yes, Sandy. I think that I'm the oldest person on this panel. I am a true boomer and I'm seeing concerns about the maid and the the medically assisted dying legislation and its abuse, I want to mention a conversation that I had with a physician, researcher, gerontologist, um, and epidemiologist the other day who was pointing out, um, all you younger people are going to have your revenge on us boomers, and it is going to be so bad. The boomer generation has, by... uh, assembling and collecting assets that have prevented generations that follow from being able to get housing, affordability, all of these things. You guys are going to get your revenge because our generation, we're facing a tsunami of the elderly coming in about 10 or 15 years. We are going to be shockingly large and we're going to be putting so much burden on younger people to carry the cost of our health care. And guess what? It's going to be so overwhelming. You guys are going to be in open revolt at having to pay for our health care after we assembled all of these assets and hoarded them to ourselves and hoarded wealth. So you have this to look forward to. That is not a point of order. And also, I'm unclear at what point I'm actually getting revenge here. <laughs> You're going to get revenge when we're old and you guys say... To hell with you guys. When everyone's old and feeble, it's going to be it's going to be the purge. It's going to be the purge. It's going to be the purge. We can take all the houses finally. Oh, this is so bleak. <laughs> it's a disaster. Actually, I mean all of this I'm saying this all in humor, but the point that this person was mentioning to me just to say this is our healthcare crisis is about to be a time bomb that's going to go off It's going to be massive. It's going to be huge. It's going to be devastating. And all governments know about it. And everybody who does any demographics knows about it and knows it's coming. And nobody's doing anything to deal with it. And I'm just going to issue this cautionary note to us boomers sitting in our nice warm houses as I am right now, that uh, it's going to be time to pay the piper pretty soon. And now I give you the once and future leader of the Green Party, Elizabeth May. So, Kenda has a new Green Party leader. Or do we? Because actually it looks like we have the same Green Party leader that we already had for years. Elizabeth May won the final vote in the Green Party's leadership race last week after having previously stepped down from leadership in 2019. The torch has officially been passed back to her, but this time around, she actually ran on a joint ticket with Jonathan Pedno, a journalist and human rights activist. When May won the leadership contest, she walked up with Pedno hand in hand and invited her competitors up on stage with her. I've seen too much stuff in the media about how we're a party divided and we can't get our act together. 
I challenge anyone here to remember any other party that ever ran a leadership race where everybody built the other candidates up, supported each other, built a team. The legitimacy of this co-leadership is a bit fuzzy, just because according to the Green Party's constitution, there aren't really provisions for it. But members of the party will have the final say if co-leadership goes through, since it will require a change to the party's constitution. The Green Party is still reeling from Anna Paul's resignation last November, and we actually saw an extremely low voter turnout in this leadership election. May says she entered the race in an attempt to rebuild the party, but how can she rebuild the party when she is of the old guard and she said in 2019 that the party needed new blood? So, Green Party leader seems like a fairly challenging position to hold. Uh, Anna Paul unfortunately described her time as leader as the worst period of her life, uh, perhaps because she was being undermined at every turn by other members of the party establishment. And Amita Kuttner, who was chosen to be interim leader uh, after Anna Paul stepped down, did not seek the permanent leadership and spoke about the need for a stronger party unity. So, David, this is a big question, but what is going on here? Why is the Green Party in such shambles? <laughs> I think it's just the sort of natural waxing and waning of these things. Uh, every political party has been a shambles at some point. The Liberal Party spent years in that position before Justin Trudeau sent them back to government. The Conservative Party was reduced to two seats in 1993. It was an utter shambles. It was sundered into pieces and only assembled a decade or so later, reassembled. So uh, these things happen. They happen all the time, and it's utterly normal for them to happen. Uh, and then sometimes they get rebuilt, though, and sometimes they don't. So to me, the interesting question is, well, uh, what what now? Is the party going to be rebuilt? Is it going to be rebuilt by these folks? Is it going to be rebuilt by different folks? Because at some point, the Greens were, they weren't exactly a massive force, but they were notable. Uh, they commanded certainly more respect in the Commons and had more uh, votes on aggregate than they do now. So it'll be interesting to see if they can put it back together. And I will say this to try to help resolve the what seems like a paradox with Elizabeth May. I get the sense that she's acting a little bit, or at least thinks she's acting a little bit like a bit of a Cincinnatus character. Apologies for being so particular about antiquity today. But, you know, uh, returning from, from the farm to lead uh, for a temporary period of time, the war effort, but co-running with someone who's young and a bit of a breath of fresh air to the party could act as a period of transition for them. So that could resolve the paradox. But of course, it's all subject to, to performance. I would agree with David. I also think that the climate issue or the climate movement is calling in some ways for the Green Party to step up and provide Canadians with a real vision for the future that's going to be um, around the innovation and the research and development and innovation on electrification and a real vision for the future. This Pedno character is actually very interesting to me. He actually seems like he's got real chops. There could be something here. I think for me, if I, and obviously my political memory is not particularly long, but, you know, Elizabeth May has been leader of the Green Party, I guess, for most of my life. And if I think back to when I would have first sort of heard about her and when I was first getting into politics as like a, a kid, it seemed like the Green Party was way ahead of the curve when it came to caring about the climate and talking about it at all. 
And I think what we see now is that every party, even down to the conservatives, has realized that they have to include some significant amount of climate or environmental content in their platform. And now it's just sort of a difference of degree, but there aren't fundamental differences in terms of like, we have one party that's particularly visionary uh, when it comes to climate and then other parties that are lagging behind. So I think maybe that's partly why interest in the Green Party has declined somewhat. I certainly think that, you know, running in an election with the loss of sort of this person who for quite a while had been like a charismatic leader of the Green Party and really the face of the movement, I think certainly hard things somewhat, especially when, by all accounts, Annamie Paul wasn't really given the same support that Elizabeth May was by the sort of administrative side of the party. So one thing that we can talk about is like the role that the Green Party plays, right? Because I think what's been mentioned is the notion that they're a party that used to command respect in the commons despite being quite small. Stu, like, how has the role of the Green Party changed in recent years? Like, is there evidence that voters have historically considered it a protest vote and no longer find it to be transgressive? Uh, Have they lost some of their heft in parliament? Like, is that somehow a part of what's causing this natural sort of waning in, I don't know, in the Green Party's stature? Yeah, I think this is a story about pretty incredible political success on Justin Trudeau's part in marginalizing his competitors. And If you think back to 2015, their entire campaign was based around the environment and being more left-wing than the NDP. Um, I don't think they were super worried about the Green Party, but it did have that effect of leapfrogging them. And the results are pretty astounding. I mean, the last election, the Green Party got fewer than 400,000 votes. Um, That's less than half that the People's Party of Canada got, which is just shocking. And I think when you look at what is the Green Party for? I think that's a great question. Because if I were part of one of these parties, that it wasn't a pragmatic party, I didn't think that I was going to be prime minister. Your job is to get ideas out there and to be principled and to push the discourse in the direction of your views. And I don't know, I think the Green Party has been all about Elizabeth May for the last little while. And the last big policy innovation that I remember them getting into the mainstream was the carbon tax. But that came from the Green Party in 2004. Uh, Stefan Dion stole it as the green shift in 2008. And it was the straight up ripoff and everybody admitted it. And that's, if you're the Green Party, you're kind of mad, but you're kind of happy that your idea is, is being used in that kind of way. But we haven't seen anything like that. And I think it's also something to do with the fact that Canadians are generally more in favor of measures to protect the environment and to fight climate change. Um, I think that's definitely true. But what has also happened is that they're more aware of the trade-offs involved in these policies. And that's partly due to the carbon tax. People know what happens when you have a carbon tax. And they know that there's no version of fighting climate change that just allows us to live our normal lives with no real costs. So if you're the Green Party, that puts you in a very hard spot where the Liberals are pushing up against the extent of political acceptability with all of their policies. And usually as a sort of principled party, you can go a little further, but I think there's less room there now because Canadians say, well, we're doing our best here and the Liberals are doing all this stuff. Why do we have to do more? Because we know it's going to cost us. If the Green Party is to continue to exist as a significant force in Canadian politics, or if it is to become one, I guess you might say, I think it has to align with a broader social movement in a deep way. Uh, it has a little bit with the environmental movement, but as as Stuart notes, that's been sort of uh, hived off by different parties. 
And so in the sense, the green have lost what used to be their sort of, you know, um, sharp edge of the sword. So they've got to replace that. I think one way to replace that is to connect deeply with a massive environmental social movement uh, and to be a leader in it. And, uh, you know, they might say they're doing that now, but that's not the sense I get from from looking at things. So uh, I, I do think that that way lies their future because absent a structural change, for instance, the electoral reform change in, in the direction of proportional representation, I just don't see them breaking through to half a dozen seats, 10 seats, 20 seats. I mean, they, they don't have the regional concentration that would allow them to do that in the way, for instance, the Bloc Québécois did uh, in the 90s or the reform did in the 80s and 90s. They just, where, where is that going to come from? Their vote continues to be distributed fairly thinly across the country, and that's just a recipe for disaster in a first-past-the-post system. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when, possibly, you will have bought tickets to our live event. That's right. If you haven't already heard, The Backbench is coming to you live. Toronto listeners will be meeting you at the Hot Doc Cinema on December 14th. It's going to be an interesting evening filled with political shit-talking from our renowned panelists and also from me. Buy your tickets now. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach. Stuart, where can people find you? Right now, they can find me with a cup of Neo Citroen, which I'm going to enjoy in a moment. Um, and online, uh, you can find me at Stuart X Thompson on Twitter and at thehub.ca. David, where can people find you? Ensconced with my dog and my little holiday <laughs> bubble here. But if you want to find me virtually, you can find me on, well, it's like Pokemon now. You've got to catch them all at Twitter. David underscore Mosscrop, Mastodon, David underscore Mosscrop, Post, which is one that exists now too. I think it's David underscore Mosscrop or just David Mosscrop. But most importantly, uh, my Substack, which I'm pouring a lot of my heart and soul and effort and honor and property into right now. And that's just uh, David Mosscrop, Substack. I look forward to reading it for all my classics trivia. <laughs> it, well, ostracism uh, runs tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I hope you will. And Sandy, where can people find you? I'm in the National Observer and I'm on Twitter at Garosino and also um, on Post. I'm joining I'm joining David and, and others in the migration. So I'm on Post at Garosino. The ducat, as featured in the Shakespeare play The Merchant of Venice, was a trade coin used throughout Europe from the 13th to the 19th centuries. The word ducat originates from the Latin word ducalis and originally meant duke's coin or duchy's coin. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Noor Azrie and Tristan Capacione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work ad-free and accessible to everybody. We love making this show for you, and we want to keep going with it. So please consider supporting Candleland. We're in the final stretch of our crowdfunding campaign, and if you haven't supported us yet, what are you waiting for? You're listening to the show. If you don't do it now, we may not be able to reach our goals for this year. Click on the link in the show notes to become a supporter or to increase your support. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. 
Thank you for listening. 